Where are we going? I promise this was a topic I picked out like nine months ago for this sermon. The last couple of weeks, we have been examining the central questions that all of us from one time or another ask and what the Christian tradition attempts to answer. Where are we going? It's a question that's at the heart of religious and spiritual experience. It's a question that's at the heart of what it is to be a people living in a family, in a community, in a world. It is a basic question of what it is to be human. Who here is tired of political ads? So a friend of mine just moved up to Northern Virginia from an area of uh, Southwest Virginia, and he posted on Facebook uh, a few weeks ago, which, uh, anyways, um, that one of the worst parts about moving up to Northern Virginia was the fact, he didn't say traffic, I was surprised. It's the fact that he is bombarded, well, we are bombarded too, with not just our own political ads, but political ads from two other states and many other counties we don't live in. I told him to just get used to it. The left and the right can't agree on anything politically at the moment except for the fact that we all want the ads to go away. But political campaigns and the ads that go with them are an attempt to answer the question, where are we going? At their best, political campaigns are a competition over differing ideas of where we are going, where we want to go, and the best way to get there. I mean, at least they should be. Elections are when we as a community, a country, come together to collectively decide what most of us feel is the best place to go and the best place to get there. Again, at least they should be. History itself is an attempt to answer the question, where are we going? Particularly as we look at where we have been and the paths others have taken. We can look at the ideas and ideals that have always been a part of this country and talk about what that looks like as we move forward. We can look at the course other nations have taken and either project their experience onto our context or use their experience as a guide to, as we chart ours. We can look at the ways we have failed to live up to our ideals and our standards and use that as a mirror for how we are living into the future. Science and technology have long been heralded as the hope for humanity. The optimism around science and technology is the foundation for a belief that we are going towards a bright future, as science and technology will provide the solutions to the problems that we currently face. This was a primary feature of the modern age, as advances in Newtonian physics led us to believe that one day, we would not only understand the basic building blocks and forces of the universe, but would be able to harness them for our own flourishing. Spoiler alert, it didn't quite work out that way, but it's okay. Religion seeks to answer this question as well. Where are we going? In fact, all aspects of our lives seek to provide pieces of information as we all answer this question, where are we going? And it is precisely this answer that will determine your outlook on life, on the world, on politics, on your community, on your personal economics, really on everything. So today we are going to look at the question, where are we going? Where is creation headed? Where is this world headed? Are we doomed and destined to destruction? 
Is everything going to continue to get better and better and better until one day we live in a utopia? The Christian tradition has provided numerous answers to this question, some disagreeing with one another on a basic level, because that is super helpful. So this morning, I wanted to outline how the Christian tradition has sought to answer these questions, and then I'm going to point us to Scripture to see what it says and how that relates to the other answers that the tr tradition has developed. But before then, a disclaimer. Because it just made it sound like that there are Christian attitudes about where we are going that are directly at odds with Scripture. And I don't really mean that. But I kind of mean that. But I should add that these theories and thoughts have their own attempted scriptural support. What they do is they just interpret or look at different scriptures. Obviously, I'm not going to find all of these as convincing as what I believe, but it's not like there are other people out there saying, I know what the Bible says, but I say this. When we turn to scripture, it won't be to point out that all the other all the other thought theories are unbiblical per se, but merely to point out how what I consider to be an important scriptural text challenges some of these understandings or some parts of these understandings about where we are going. With that caveat disclaimer in place, let's talk about where we're headed. The first answer I want to talk about comes out of the Protestant liberal tradition of the 17 and 1800s. Now, I get that liberal means lots of different things to lots of different people with respect to politics, but being liberal in theology is different than being liberal in politics, so we're just going to put aside all the connotations that word has. It's a school of theology for this one hour. The Protestant, Protestant liberal theological tradition developed as a result of the Enlightenment, and it sought to have the Christian faith answer to and answer for advancements in philosophy, science, and technology, and the arts that were happening in Western Europe. Liberal theology tends to have a bad connotation these days for seemingly watering down the gospel to apply to culture. However, the liberal theological project, at its heart, was about opening the truth of the Christian faith to the best thinking of the time. It was noble in its efforts. It was about adapting the truth of the gospel to the changing cultural and philosophical norms of the time. So what the Protestant liberal tradition thought about where we were going was utopia. Buttressed by the advances in science and moral philosophy, folks in the 18th and 19th centuries believed that the world was going to get better and better and better until one day we really figured this thing out. So Protestant liberals believed that the influence that Christians could have on culture was to reform and transform it into the kingdom of God. There was a novel written during the height of the Protestant liberal tradition called In His Steps that talked about where we were going because of Christians. The subtitle of the book is What Would Jesus Do? And the book centers on the results of a town's well-being because a preacher challenged his congregation to spend a year thinking about nothing other than what would Jesus do. And a number of the town ills were cured because Christians seriously started to follow Jesus. Corruption was exposed and overcome. A newspaper chose not to cover stories that shed, an undesirable, that shed light on undesirable aspects of society. And because of that, those aspects suffered and failed. 
The basic conclusion of the novel is that society can be bettered and even perfected by Christians choosing to really follow the teachings of Jesus. Within this tradition, there's a belief that we will bring about the kingdom of God through human beings truly believing and devoting themselves to the teachings of Jesus. The kingdom of God becomes a human possibility through the grace already given to us and freely available to us in Jesus Christ. If you ask the Protestant liberal tradition where we are going, the answer would be we are building the kingdom in our midst and we will continue to see more and more of the kingdom until it is here in its fullness. I'm a math nerd. Shocked, I know. And there's a principle in calculus where you look at a function as being either continuous or discontinuous. That is to say, continuous means you can connect the dots on every piece of the function from the beginning to the end. Linear is straight line, exponential involves some sort of curve, but these are all continuous. Discontinuous means there's some sort of jump in the function where what has come before has no bearing on what comes next. For Protestant liberals, the journey from where we are now to God's perfect kingdom is continuous. We go and go and go until we are there. I geek out on math because for others that won't be the case. Which is a good time to turn to the other side of the coin, the evangelical tradition. In many senses, the Protestant liberal tradition and the evangelical tradition are two sides of the same coin. Though they really can't stand each other, but it's okay. They both owe their philosophical heritage to the Enlightenment and how they make central the autonomous individual. I think, therefore, I am. However, they differ on the ultimate state of the world. The evangelical tradition has as its center the notion that the ultimate destiny of humanity is split. Some of us, those who believe in Jesus, are destined to go to heaven when we die, a celestial paradise. Those who don't are destined to go to hell and be eternally... bad stuff happens. Those within the tradition tend to argue how those distinctions are made. But for our purposes, what we need to clue in on are two crucial things. Heaven and hell are both real places that are definitely not here and everyone is headed to one of those two places. So when the evangelical tradition attempts to answer the question, where are we going? The answer is either heaven or hell. Think for a second the Billy Graham question of if you died tonight, do you know where your soul would go? And heaven and hell are both already realized realities that we leave here to go to. Let's contrast that with the previous tradition. The Protestant liberals thought Christians would make this world here and now better and better and better until the kingdom of God was realized here on earth. In his steps was about the impact of following Jesus on a town in Kansas, very much here and now. The evangelical tradition says that the kingdom of God is an already realized entity that while we might be able to sense and glimpse here, we only fully enter when we die and leave this place to go into that fully realized kingdom, which is heaven. To bring it back to our math paradigm, I know y'all are loving this. If, the Protestant liberal tradition, if in the Protestant liberal tradition there was clear continuity between our experience now and the kingdom, in the evangelical tradition there is clear discontinuity temporally 
spatially and existentially between life now and the kingdom. There's one more part of the tradition that I want to talk about. Y'all are being so patient with me. I love you for it. Thank you. And that part of the tradition is the fundamentalist tradition that talks about dispensationalism. My read of it is the fundamentalists attempted to address the biggest problems of each of the two traditions that came before them. Because when they look at the evangelical point of view, we can easily start to say that this world is not our home, so it doesn't matter what happens here. This world becomes a sort of simulation, if you will, a proving ground for our ultimate destination. This is in the far extremes. That tends to devalue the world and can lead Christians to not care about tragedies and travesties that happen here because this isn't our home. The flip side that is the extreme Protestant liberal perspective that sees what happens here as the only thing that matters and confuses what we see here with the kingdom and also believes in the myth of eventual, uh, perpetual progress. The fundamentalist perspective seems to bridge that through a concept called dispensationalism. What this theory says is that the Bible talks about different dispensations, and each are their own discrete, self-contained event. We are currently living in the dispensation of the church, and our ultimate dispensation, our ultimate destination, is another dispensation called the kingdom. I bring this up now because I think it's best to talk about this in conversation with the other two ideas that we've talked about. Fundamentalism and dispensationalism is a helpful corrective to evangelicalism in that it matters what happens in the here and now. We are on a particular level of a video game and God is keeping score. God cares what is happening here and now in the video game called the church. However, what happens here and now is not dependent upon our ultimate destination. One thing fundamentalism and evangelicalism take seriously is the reality of sin in the world. On the one hand, life on earth does seem to improve with each passing generation when we look at birth rates, poverty rates, disease, etc. But it often feels naive, on the other hand, to truly believe that we will bring about utopia. We've lived with human beings for quite a long time to realize that we are not going to figure this thing out. Protestant liberal theology fell out of fashion in Europe only after two world wars. It was after seeing the chaos and carnage that human beings can inflict upon each other that Christian thinkers in Europe began to seriously question and doubt our ability to gradually and continually move on to perfection. So what dispensationalism is, about, uh, is trying to achieve is to avoid the escapism that comes, can come from evangelical theology that is dispassionate towards the sufferings and ills of this world, while also avoiding the naivete of Protestant liberal theology that cannot seem to really grasp that humans, frankly, we can be jerks. So within this dispensation, the dispensation of the church, Christians are called to do good works. We are called to make this world a better place. But there is a clear discontinuity between where we are now and our ultimate destiny. God will bring that about through a special and new work of God in the world. So we talked about all three of these different theories. Uh, let's finally turn to the Bible. That would have been a good place to start, but oh well. And look at the final chapters of 
the book. The big book, the whole thing. Because it is there where we see where we are going, where our ultimate destiny is. We are looking at Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Skipping to, page, to chapter 22. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then the angel showed me, this is actually the start of 22, my apologies. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear, clear as crystal, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now there are multiple details in these verses that I think are highly significant. The first is that the new heaven and the new earth come about as a work of God. Where we are going is not wholly dependent on our abilities, but God working in the world. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and is laid here. Laid here on earth. This is incredibly significant. For it's not so much that we are ultimately headed somewhere else, but that somewhere else is headed here. What happens here on earth matters. And that God's project doesn't involve taking us from here to his kingdom, but in bringing his kingdom here. Our seer is allowed to walk through the new Jerusalem and sees the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of the city. But there is a tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We see that when this new forever is inaugurated, there will still be things that need healing. It's not so much that we continue on to perfection as much as it is that God makes all things new and heals and redeems all things. There will be no more curse. There will be no more sin. For we will see God. We will know God. We will serve God and follow God. And God will be our light. Our relationship with God will be redeemed and perfected, and in turn will our relationships with one another. The curse, the effects of sin will be gone. Wherever we look, wherever we go, we can see the effects of sin here and now. We can see people being hurt. We, we see people suffering. We ourselves are hurt and we ourselves suffer. What I love about the way that Revelation talks about where we are going is that all of that hurt and pain is not forgotten. It's not washed over. 
Instead, it is healed. It is redeemed. It is made into something beautiful and joyful. The other schools of thought make that hurt and pain something we just get past or get over. The way Revelation talks about where we are going is that God goes right through our hurt and our pain and it is made new. All of us wonder, ask the question, where are we going? Where is this world headed? Are we going to Hades in a handbasket? Will all of this end in oblivion? To what extent does this matter? All religions seek to answer this question, and we have seen that the Christian tradition has provided a number of different answers. This morning, the Bible tells us that we are going to God. We are going to redemption. God is working to make all things new. God will one day redeem and restore the hurt and the pain that the curse has wrought. We will live with God in the new Jerusalem. God will come here and he will be our God and we will be his people. Our ultimate hope and our ultimate joy are in the salvation that our God is bringing. We work now to make some of that salvation known. We work now and announce that ultimate restoration of this world. And we eagerly await that glorious and blessed forever. Let us pray.